And of course, uh, Jesus went back to heaven in Acts chapter 1. And if you see, if you want to outline the book of Acts, it really is that Jesus went up. Number two, the Holy Spirit came down. His disciples who were filled with the Holy Spirit went out and people came in to Jesus Christ. That's kind of what happened. Chapter one, Jesus goes back to heaven. They anoint one other man to be the next apostle in place of Judas. Chapter two, they tarry in Jerusalem for approximately 10 days and there... The Spirit of God descends upon them. They go out and begin witnessing. We call that Pentecost. And uh, they're there, a preacher preaches, and 3,000 people get saved. And the church grows very rapidly, much of which with men and women are from other places of the world who have come for their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. But they hear the gospel, they get saved, and some stay in Jerusalem, others go out. In chapter 3, Peter and John, two people who really struggled to get along in the time with Jesus. Now the Spirit of God came, unity continues, and prayer becomes their pursuit. Chapter 3, they go to pray. God lets them heal a man. The healing there does not save the man or anybody else. But what it does do, it gives a chance for them to preach again the gospel of Christ. And eventually, 5,000 more people come to know Christ as their Savior. It's in a crowded time, and lots of things are going. But the devil is not going to be satisfied with that. He's going to try to bring persecution, and he does. And you can see a cycle going on in the book of Acts. Number one, it is prayer. Number two, power. Number three, preaching or soul winning, proclaiming the gospel. And then number four, persecution. Persecution begins to get stirred up. The Lots of things are challenged there. In chapter 5, we see that problems begin to, to creep into this new early church. One of those was deceitfulness. Ananias and Ephyrus are dealt with by the Lord, and God brings discipline. That discipline brings fear to the hearts of people in the church, and they recognize the power of God. And several things came out of the church that day with Ananias and Sapphiris. Number one, an encounter with God. Number two, they wanted to get hypocrisy and insincerity out of there. It went away too. And then the fear of God fell upon the people, and God began to do a work in the lives of that early church. But once again, the devil began to fight, and the disciples were arrested while preaching the gospel. They went back, preached again, and you'll see that that early church was a speaking church. And by the way, the church doesn't speak. The church is not a building. It is the building that doesn't speak. Okay, the church is, not, an organ, is not, a, not necessarily an organization, it is people. And everybody ought to be a preacher of the gospel ministry if you're saved. Everybody ought to go everywhere. And the Bible tells they went everywhere preaching the gospel. Boy, it's a bad, bad scenario when we expect only the deacons or the staff or the Sunday school teachers to be witnesses. No, everybody ought to be a witness. Every member ought to be a, be a minister. Every saint ought to be a soul winner. Everybody ought to be getting the gospel. And we find that from the early church. They were a speaking church. They were a spirit-filled church. They were a loving church. They were a giving church. And all of it came together, and we get to see it played out. In chapter 6, we find that because of the growth, God began, God showed them some things through a problem. The problem was a social problem and a structural problem. And every church has problems. You'll never find a problemless church. If I don't know if problemless is a word, but if, I just made one, all right? Add it to the dictionary. No. You will not find a, pro, a church without problems. This thing was a lot, had a lot of problems, and the more people, the more problems. 
Every once in a while I say, well, I don't want, I've heard someone say, I don't want to go to big, I want to go to small churches, a lot of those problems. But a lot of those people too. <laughs> you get more problem, you get a little bit, you get more people, you get a little more problems. And certainly that was the case. And it was a social problems between holistic Jews and Israel-born Jews there, Jews that grew up in, in, the, in Israel, and those Jews who had been Greeks from all over the world that had come back there, and there had been some problems, there had been some neglect. And uh, we find that there, were, there was a problem, and uh, there was a priority. They saw the priority was getting the gospel out. They said, listen, the pastors, the preachers, the leaders, we've got to focus on preaching the word of God and prayer. It's just kind of a two-punch here, preaching and prayer, preaching and prayer. Um, today, I was, I was here praying uh, with you and, in the prayer time. And I've had a few folks, not very many people, but occasionally people say, but I don't like that prayer time. It's awkward. But you know, I think it's essential. Someone said prayer is not always the most exciting thing in church, but it is one of the most essential things in church. I talked to a man yesterday. He said, Pastor, every day I try to pray for the leaders of our church. I pray for the families of our church. I pray for the church services. Every day I pray to pray. And this man is not able to preach. He's not able to, to do what he used to do. He used to be in multiple nursing homes and work in the jail ministry and worked in the steel mills. And now his body is not as strong as it used to be. But he can pray. He said, all I'm doing is pray. You know, I think sometimes the most essential thing that a church could do is pray. Because prayer brings power. Power brings proclamation of the gospel of Christ. And oh, how we need to pray. I need to do it. You need to do it. Go to prayer meetings. Pray with each other. Pray over the phone. We've got a couple of our men who get, get up on, at 5.30 on Tuesday morning. They get on the phone. One lives in Dyer. The other one lives here in Hammond. They talk. And they talk. They call each other. And they pray for one hour over the phone. And that's wonderful. The precious ladies who get together and have prayer time. Not gossip sessions, prayer time. You know, praying, saying, God, please do something. I do believe there's something special about prayer. And the church, he said, look, we've got to make sure that we've got a problem here, but we've got to remember our priority. Our priority is not going around patting people on the head, making sure everybody's comfortable. It's aggravating when people are so frustrated about, oh, it's too hot, or it's too cold, or I don't like that, or I saw this wasn't right. Well, listen, forget all that. That's baby stuff. But I find out, did they hear the word of God? Did people get saved? Is there prayers being prayed? Or there, is, there, is there proclamation of the gospel being? That's what the main priorities of a church are. I thank God for the other thing. We ought to have clean buildings. We ought to have, we ought to have uh, air conditioning. That's fine. I like all that stuff. But those are not priorities. Well, I want this for my kid, and I want this, and I, hear, I want this to be done. I want this structure, and all that's good and fine. But the priority is the word of God and prayer. And usually someone who's flapping their suit cooler about all those other things are not proclaiming the gospel of Christ and they're not praying. <laughs> if they were, people who are soul winners and prayer warriors oftentimes don't have a lot of time to talk about other stuff. They, they got the priorities settled there. But the priorities were protected by people who stood up and said, we'll be used of God. And there were seven men who were chosen to be deacons. Uh, some people believe, it seemed like to me that Stephen and Philip probably had more Jewish names. The other one had more Greek names. But most people who believe and study the Bible believe that all seven of them were holistic Jews. They were Jews that were not necessarily born in, um, in Israel and raised in Israel, but they came, they migrated there. But now they chose them to take care of the Grecian widows. 
But those, those seven men were used of God, but two of them in particular. If you continue reading your Bible, you'll see in, Genesis, in, uh, in Acts chapter 6 and 7, Stephen, a man full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, he preached a powerful message. He knew that his, his destiny was going to, he's going to die. He knew that. He was, he was a dying man preaching to people who are going to kill him. And so he gave his last swan song message, and it was, um, it's unbelievable. He references it in just almost, it's almost comical because he's speaking to the Sanhedrin. These group of people who know the, the Torah, they know the history of the, Jew, or the Jewish people, they know that, and he rehearses them like they're, like they're little kindergartners and begins to tell them. And then he pulls them down and goes for the juggler when he tells them that you've rejected Jesus and you need Jesus. And from that, that difficult situation, they began to take him out of that Sanhedrin gathering, pulled him outside the city, and began to, uh, to pelt him with rocks until he was in the presence of the Lord. And we see that he died. He was one of the first martyrs. As a result of that, they laid their coat at one man named Saul's feet. And it was typical, if I understand correctly, because Saul, was, he was consenting to the death. He was seemingly one of the younger men. This is about, if I understand my math right and I understand the timeline, this is about four or five years potentially after Jesus goes back to heaven. Most people believe it was in AD 38 or so, so maybe three to five years after Jesus already got to heaven, the church has now grown, but persecution is coming. And it's coming from a young man named Saul who, by his own admission, if you can read the book of Philippians chapter 3, you'll find that he was, he was a Pharisee of Pharisee. He was a a member of the tribe of Benjamin. He was studied at the feet of Gamaliel. He was a very, very uh, young, but very aggressive, passionate Jewish man. And he persecuted the church. And he heard the message that day that Stephen preached. And it seemed to be that he was maybe in charge of getting him stoned that day and killed. Sometimes, some people say this, I don't know if it's true or not, but they say whoever was consenting, whoever gave the final vote, said, I, 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 I affirm this guy should die. Then whoever was killing him would take their coats off and put it at his feet and go get rocks and begin throwing them. And he would stand there, and he was the vote. He was the one who was uh, consenting to the persecution of Stephen. I don't know all that happened. We'll find out in eternity future as we stand before the Lord and we'll know even as also we're known what was happening that day. But a lot was happening. We'll see that from that situation that Saul never got out of his mind. The suffering of a Christian. Why would he do that? I think Saul knew that Stephen knew the Bible about as good as he knew the Bible. He knew that he could not resist. He couldn't argue. He couldn't win an argument. It couldn't resist the wisdom and the spirit that he had as he spoke and spoke of Christ. But Saul said, he's got to die. He's, we've got to kill him. And of course, the devil's idea was to destroy Christianity. Paul was to stamp it out one by one. His plan was to go, and we'll find out in chapter 9, was to find Christians wherever they were and arrest them and just, just doggedly persecute them until they would quit. But there's a, there's a secret to Christianity. The more it's oppressed, the more it grows. 
Because when persecution, difficulties come, the men become boys. Boys become men, excuse me, that's, that's opposite. People start growing up. Well, the real things matter. Priorities begin to surface, and they say, you know what, listen, this, this is something God wants. Now we find in chapter 8, we'll find three uh, people. We'll find Stephen is now with the Lord. But now we find Saul is still in the scene. And he becomes more infused by the stoning of Stephen. Power has been given to him. He had, they had laid down their, their coat at his feet. Now he's engaged, and he's, he is very aggressive now. He's going the wrong direction, and he's going to meet Jesus in chapter 9. He's going to say, Saul, Saul, why persecute thou me? You can read it for yourself. He's going to meet Jesus on a head-on collision, and he'll never be the same. By the way, if you meet Jesus on a head-on collision, you'll never be the same. If any man be in Christ, he is a? Are you a new creature? I think all of us ought to evaluate, am I the same old person I've always been? I need an encounter with Jesus. If you got that at salvation, wonderful. If you've kind of gone apathetic away from God, get a new encounter with Jesus. You'll find him where you left him. If you're not right with him, get back with him. Live your life and go all the way. Don't, don't quit. But we'll find that, that Saul is the persecutor. We'll see that there's power in this layman named Philip. And then lastly, we see that there is peril in a man named Simon. Our time is going to be short, but let's look at chapter 1, can we please? Chapter 8, verse number 1 of Acts. And Saul was consenting unto his death, and at the time there was great persecution against the church that was at Jerusalem. Now, once you notice, Dr. Luke is our, is our human instrument that God uses to write the book of Acts. And he uses the word great several times. We saw it in previous chapters, chapter 6, where it says, And there were great grace was upon the people of God there. Great grace was upon them all. Here he said there was great persecution, especially in the church at Jerusalem. Let's look at the next thing the Bible says. And they all were scattered abroad throughout the regions. What's the two regions? Judea and Samaria, except who? The apostles. I want you to notice, you might want to put in, the, in your margin of your Bible there, Acts 1.8. Some of you know it by heart. You were raised in church. Some of us, we would never heard this, but Acts 1.8 says, But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Those are the last words of Jesus before he went back to heaven. Now... Three to five years later, everybody's still in Jerusalem. Really, the, the, the church has stayed together. Are they supposed to stay together? No. The church is supposed to spread out. It's supposed to go over. They're staying in the same place. And he says, look, this is, not, this is not the way it's going to happen. So the Lord uses a very difficult thing. He uses persecution. And what they would not do willingly they were willing to do after they started getting some problems. In the Old Testament, there's a group of hornets. Uh, there was a group of Canaanites, and they, didn't, they said, we're not leaving. Well, the hornets made them willing to go. Now, there's a little song that says, When the Canaanites hardened their hearts against God, it grieved them because of their sin. God lent, sent along hornets to bring them to time and caused his own people to win. Now the hornets persuaded them that it was best to go quickly and not to go slow. 
God will not compel them to go against their will, but he sure made them willing to go. <laughs> and sometimes that happens to you and happens to me. I'm not doing, I'm not doing that. Then you find out you're going to do that. Now you don't get to do it willingly. You get to do it because you have to. Well, these folks, they were supposed to already be taken out and going. But they were staying around Jerusalem, huddled there. And uh, the Bible tells us now they scattered. They went to Judea where they were supposed to go. And they went to Samaria. Well, Judea was the area around Jerusalem and southern Israel. Samaria was the area between Jerusalem and Judea and Galilee, and it was inhabited by people who did not like the Jews, but the Jews especially did not like them. Whenever the northern kingdom, they moved their place of worship up there in, in Samaria, and they wouldn't allow them to come down to Jerusalem, and their king did not want that to happen either. They married among the Assyrians, so they were half Jews, half Assyrians. And so the people of God, these, these Israelites, they did not, the Jews did not want to be interacting with, the, with the, the Samaritans. We find that Jesus already spread his truth in there. In John chapter 4, he said, I must needs go through Samaria. And that's where he met the little woman at the well. She was Samaritan. And he stayed there three days and gave them the gospel and said a lot of, a lot of seeds planted, a lot of seeds that were watered by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now fast forward, and we find that one of the men, Philip, made his way down to Samaria. Let's keep, let's keep going if we can, please. Look at verse number two. And devout men, and by the way, the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. We can be critical of that, but probably most of the people that were being persecuted were Jews that were not from that area. The, the, all the apostles were from that area. Verse 2, the devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation for them. You see these people right here. I don't know if they were Christians or they were just Jewish men who, who were just disappointed that they killed this guy. They, they're scratching their heads. And they're wondering if this happened. I don't know. But they were devoted men and they were very courageous. They went out there and pulled all the rocks off the dead, beaten, bludgeoned body of Stephen. And they took him. They were courageous. They could, have been, they could have been yelled at or cursed or told, get away from him. Leave him to die and rot under the rocks. But they did. They took him and they took him and they made great lamentation. They cried and they mourned. If you ever see in the Middle East how the, there'll be a casket taken to the streets and people will just cry out and cry and put their hand in the casket and yell and, and mourn those things. They were kind of professional mourners. But these people made great lamentations. They took him and laid him in a grave. And of course, his wife and his kids still going to the church at Jerusalem. But great lamentation. You see some people stood up and helped, and they weren't afraid of what people might have done or said to them. Verse number three, can you look at it with me? The Bible says, for, and for Saul, he made havoc for, of the church. He just tortured them. Entering to every house, he found any Christian he would enter their house with the police, no doubt, hailing men and women and committing them to prison. He would say that he did that again in Acts chapter 22 and verse number 4. You can read as he spoke toward this to, the, to the, the group of people there. But this guy was on fire against God. And he was so passionate. He said, we saw Stephen dead. Now who's the next guy? 
And he would go, are you a Christian? He would go in their house and have them taken out and take them to prison and complicate their life, get them fired from their jobs, get them ostracized from their friends and their family. He would do every could to, to torture the people of God. The Bible uses the term, he had made havoc, tore them up. Look at the next verse, if you would, please. Verse 4, therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Instead of, um, instead of uh, just uh, saying, oh, it's too bad, it's so hard to be this, they went everywhere beginning to share the gospel of Christ. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto these things that Philip spake, and hearing and seeing the miracles which he did, and unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice. Not only were people demon-possessed, but others had physical maladies. They called it palsies there. They were healed. Now I want you to read verse 8 with me, would you please, everyone? And there was... It's amazing. Philip now running from... He's the next guy. If you could imagine, uh, Stephen is killed. Now the energy is going. Where's the other six? Where are those food distributors who are made the deacons? And I'm sure that all of them had to leave. They had to leave Jerusalem. They couldn't stay there. So Philip went into Samaria. That would be like going into the hood. Going in where, you know, you're in, you're in a place where the police won't go. <laughs> the Jewish police had no interest in going to Samaria and arresting anybody there. So they, he went over there. Into, into a bad neighborhood, a place where the Jewish folks would not come, the police would not come into Samaria. And we find that Philip had a wife. He had four daughters that Paul visited later on in the book of Acts. I don't know if he took the whole family or just he himself went, but Paul was not discriminatory against the men or the women. He said, I took men and women. I don't care if they're mamas. I don't care if they're sisters. I don't care if they're men or ladies. We get everybody, put them in jail if they're going to be this so I would assume that Philip probably went in there and went into Samaria, and the Bible says he preached the word of God to them. And from the word of God, he, got to, he had the opportunity to, to uh, see them get saved. And I love this. I think it's a great testimony. There's more things to share with you than I can share in the time we have left together today. But I want you to notice several things that come to my mind about the early church that I think can be helpful to all of us. I think, number one, I want you to notice that First of all, God is a God of global conquest. God wants everybody to hear about the gospel. Not just the people in Hammond, Northwest Indiana, Chicago. He wants everybody to hear about it. He is very aggressive about that. And if you want to be in partnership with God, you'll need to be a global Christian. You'll need to say, you know what, I, if God cares about them, then I care about them. Here the Samaritans were an unlikely people. They were disdained. I'm sure the disciples, if they were arguing with Jesus, they would say, please, Jesus, no, not through Samaria. Let's don't go there. It teaches us several things. Number one, there's a global conquest. Number two, I want you to know there was a Gentile commencement. This is where God begins to show them very clearly that salvation is not just for the Jews. It's for everybody. Aren't you glad for that? Some of you are Jewish. Thank God for you. I love the Jewish people. I rarely ever see a Jewish person. I don't tell them, I love Israel. I love the Jewish people. But the truth of the matter is, I'm not Jewish. So I'm very grateful for Samaritan. I'm a Samaritan, probably. I'm grateful. I was on the other side of the track. 
I'm glad that God loves me and he loves everybody. He wants to, he died for the whole world. And you and I ought to be on this global conquest. Number two, we ought to realize that the Gentiles commence to get to hear the gospel. I want you to notice another thing, and here's the last thing I'll share with you today. I want you to share with you this. It was gifted colleagues. Philip. Philip wasn't the pastor. He was distributing food for the church. He was mowing grass for the widows. He was fixing, hanging their doors and fixing their problems. He was just a gifted colleague. But God used him in a wonderful way. And as I said early in our series in Acts, no one in the church is insignificant. Everybody matters. And God highlighted this guy. And you know what, the one thing I love about him is that, and you'll see later on in Acts chapter 8, he was very obedient. He had hundreds of people getting saved in Samaria, and God told him to go out to the desert for what he didn't know, but was to reach one. You'll find that he raised four godly girls who preached and were soul winners with their dad. He must have loved their mother. He must have been a good man, but he was just a man in the church that played a significant role in getting many people the gospel. You know, dear friend, I want you to know that God wants to use you. Pastor, I'm, I'm a lady. God wants to use you. I'm young. God wants to use you. I don't make a lot of money. God wants to use you. I'm retired now. Well, return. Do what God wants you to do. Because I love this story because the early church shows us, number one, God's interested in the whole world getting the gospel. And he uses gifted, simple colleagues to do it. Listen, every one of us, any of us can take a gospel track and say, could you read this? It tells you about Jesus. Any of us can do that. We can talk to someone long enough to get the gospel to them. All of us ought to be, or we all can give. Every once in a while I find someone, I just can't give. Every once in a while I remember hearing men in our church say, Lord, bless those that can give and those who can't give. There's no one in that last category. Everybody can give. God made you that way. But everybody ought to get involved in the work of the Lord.